the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. Hour number two, the Tuesday edition of Lifeline from KFAX. We talk a lot about religious rights on this program, First Amendment rights that are not granted by the Constitution, but rather protected by the Constitution. But sometimes they're not always protected by government. Help us figure out that dichotomy. Let's take a look at a case out of Oregon. To the north of us, Brad Dake is constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, joins us. Um, Brad, this is interesting. You know, one of the things that we've heard repeatedly, and the empirical evidence is, is abundant, that the rate of recidivism within the penal system is about 80%. So that means that somebody is convicted of a uh, crime that might be a drug use, drug abuse, something more severe. There's an 80% chance they're going to wind up back in jail again at some point. And yet, and yet, faith-based programs that bring about the ability to address issues, be it uh, illegal behavior, drug addiction, et cetera, et cetera, uh, they have just the opposite results. 80% of people uh, once they go through a faith-based program, uh, come clean, stay clean. And that's pretty remarkable. In spite of, however, those remarkable uh, statistics for how successful faith-based programs can be, apparently the Oregon penal system never got the message. Tell us what's going on. Certainly. Um, our client, Timothy Kruger, is a former drug addict, and uh, he uh, did the crime, and he was in there prison doing the time. Uh, but there was a program, it's a secular program, uh, called Alternative Incarceration Program, and he signed up for it, and he went through the program, all three parts of it. Uh, he got his certificate, his medallion for completion, and he was then supposed to be re- released six months early. But they refused to release him because they said that he used his religion as a crutch. Now, while he was there in the program and in prison, um, he turned back to the Lord and God humbled his heart, and he and uh, really did an incredible transformation. But the person in charge of that program, the counselor, uh, working on and, and certifying these people coming through, uh, didn't like the fact that he was giving the credit to God and the work of the Holy Spirit. And uh, he said, no, no, that's, that's just, you're just using that as a crutch. Um, and they flunked him, and he had to stay in jail six more months for one reason and one reason only, and that's because of his profession, of his Christian faith, and his testimony of the work of God in his life. You know, <laughs> I mean, t- t- talk about talk about dog wags tail, or tail wags dog, rather. Uh, that that seems to be so backwards. And, and at what point did there seem to be this great degree of offense that the secular program, what, just couldn't deal with the notion that the man was, was finding results based on his faith? I mean, again, I, I've cited the statistics a, statistics a moment ago. And, you know, call it what you will. If, if the terminology in the secular world is that religion is a crutch, but that crutch allows you to come clean from drug abuse and stay clean, God bless you, you know, and, and Godspeed. Exactly. You know, they would have invalidated Alcoholics Anonymous 
which requires you to acknowledge a higher power, uh, that would have been, quote, probably just a crutch uh, in their mindset. And yet uh, the, the results is so evident, and uh, the fact that they specifically for that reason uh, punished him and had him in jail for six months more was outrageous. Fortunately for us, we have an office there now in Salem, Oregon. Uh, Ray Hackey is our attorney who heads up that office, and he's the one who filed the lawsuit in defense of this gentleman. And it's not just for him, but really, Craig, also for, for other prisoners and other programs. No, no prisoner should be forced to spend more time uh, because of a spiritual transformation in their life while they're in prison. What are the uh, the potential consequences here uh, in terms of being able to to deal with the state? I mean, the the fact that they have essentially flunked this guy out of the program due to a quote unquote lack of progress. There there's got to be some some damages there in in, in a real sense, literally and figuratively. Oh yes, um, li- literally. I mean, he was there in prison for six months when he shouldn't have been. Um, that's that's a, a price to be paid. Uh, but from our perspective, uh, we're suing for monetary damages uh, because we know that that's the only thing that they will listen and, and, and learn from is uh, if there are monetary damages. Uh, our client is not a, a, someone with bitterness, uh, but he doesn't want to see this happen to anyone else, and he wants them to learn their lesson. Uh, the state of Oregon um, definitely needs to, to, uh, to learn from this, and we're going to make sure of it through our representation, Lord willing. All right, and and that said, I'm curious. During this entire process, when repeatedly um, the counselor responsible for overseeing the rehabilitation of Mr. Kruger uh, had been so demonstrably negative toward his faith, uh, was there no time, no opportunity for Mr. Kruger to kind of wave a hand and say, "Wait a minute, I'm being treated unfairly here"? Yeah, well, exactly. Um, he was just simply denied the, the medallion certificate taken from him, and, um, and that was it. There was no opportunity for him to appeal it or to, uh, to make his case as to how the, the counselor over the program uh, had uh, clearly discriminated against him because of her own personal uh, probable issues that she was dealing with. I'll sort of leave it at that probably. I, it's very speculative. Uh, but that's why we had to step in, um, because uh, if, if we don't, I, I can see this, this counselor in this program doing this to, to more people, and, and, and who knows how many they've already done this to, uh, but uh, without a doubt, faith and transformation is a, is a very proven, effective part for uh, rehabilitation, and uh, no prison system, including the Oregon uh, prison system, should, uh, should ever miss that very fundamental point. We appreciate time uh, that you share with us today, these insights, and uh, and most importantly, uh, once again, reminding us not only how fragile our our uh, constitutional rights can be at the hands of, of some, but how important it is to stand up for those rights. Brad Dacus, president, founder of the Pacific Justice Institute. More information online at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. All right, let's get a look at traffic again. We're going to head back over to the KFAX Traffic Center, where standby is Michael Bennett with the latest. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we are back. So, too, is Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. As you know, just about, a, well, not quite a week ago, he was back in Washington, D.C., where he reported from the annual um, March for Life. And a lot of uh, 
A lot of interesting, colorful events that uh, took place that seem to be sort of ancillary to the actual march itself that unfortunately in uh, mainstream media tend to gather more attention than the actual march. And that's sad because it's, it's a significant event every year, this, of course, being the 46th annual March for Life. One of the things that happened this year was the appearance of Vice President Mike Pence. To get more, we're joined by Brian Johnston. And Brian, welcome back to uh, the West Coast. Well, thank you, Craig, very much. And uh, it's a little bit colder back there now, but no, we're very proud of Vice President Pence as governor and in Congress. He was a solid pro-life individual and continued to do that. And you're right, there's a lot of other things that get thrown up now that was rather extraordinary, particularly how the pop media uh, presented that conflict. And then to see what really happened, we're hoping that people's eyes are being opened But one of the things that I am sensing in a larger sense is that there is an understanding now with the new Supreme Court justices that Roe versus Wade may not have long to live, so to speak. And that's causing a real reaction amongst the pro-abortion forces. And as you're probably aware, on the 22nd, in New York State, Uh, Governor Cuomo signed into law a new law. The state of of New York had protected children after 24 weeks, and that was still on the books. And just that's very similar to the books in California. But, of course, Roe said no states can protect a baby. That's the effect of Roe. And, again, many people don't understand that. The common uh, misunderstanding is, oh, it's only in the first trimester. No. Roe allows abortion at any time, or for any reason, or for no reason in particular, just for choice. And that isn't fully understood. Okay, well, with the coming, perhaps, demise of Roe, we're seeing several states, and again, one is New York, and a Catholic governor who signed into law a new law that says you can kill a baby up until the moment of birth. But it went even further. Because up until January 21st of this year, if a child was born alive in the course of an abortion, New York state law said you need to take care of that child. That if the child's alive, you know, squirming on, on the operating table, if you will, your duty is to care for that life. That also was struck down. So what we had is a direct assault. The way I, I look at this is not from a religious point of view. Obviously, Mario Cuomo doesn't. He's looking at it from a very hardcore ideology that says it's not about being unpregnant. It's about the right to end a life. That human baby does not have the right to be alive. It's an extraordinary measure, and even today now, the state of Rhode Island is considering an almost identical measure. And so what this tells us is that they sense Roe may soon be overturned. And that's going to give most of the states, now here on the, the West Coast, from, from Washington all the way down to California, there is essentially unlimited abortion. In the state of California, it's paid for with your money. Um, and then a handful of other states, Colorado, New Mexico, states are, that are predominantly uh, Democrat, uh, they already have this. But when Roe is overturned, many states can then and then move to protect babies once again. And I'm going to predict 
uh, I'll step out here. I'm going to predict it's going to be one of the measures regarding late-term abortion. Uh, the the uh, Unborn Child Protection Act, the Pain Capable Act, or the Dismemberment Abortion Act, that deals with late-term abortion. And the reason that's significant is that that is a self-evident truth. You don't have to have a religious inclination. In fact, it's, it's just common sense. That is a human baby, and that baby is viable outside the womb. That is a human baby, and common sense speaks against just killing that baby. So, in one sense, as hard as things are right now, I think, Craig, there's a, 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 bright, a bright line around these dark clouds that they're redefining the debate. It's not about the first three months, and they admit it. This is about the right to simply kill a human baby in order to be unpregnant. But it isn't just being unpregnant. It's the right to kill that baby, because if the baby's born alive, now in New York, you can kill that living, squirming, often crying human baby. So this is an amazing time in history we're living through. And uh, again, all I see as a blessing is that they are publicly redefining the debate in a way that we've been trying to get across all along. And and now the whole aspect of late-term abortion is going to come into the fore and I think it's it's always been needed. But now Joe Sixpack and Sally Soapop are now people who live down the street from you. They don't like late-term abortion, even people who call themselves pro-choice. So there's an amazing, amazing change. The battle is still on us, and all we have to do is stand for common sense, stand for self-evident truth, stand for the facts, and the facts are on our side. Do you get the sense, too, that there's a... a a, a tremendous paradigm shift taking place here. Um, and, and I ask that question specifically, Brian, because it seems that the younger generation is less open to these ideas of, you know, on-demand abortion, using it for baby selection, things of this sort, uh, than we've seen in, in previous generations, to the point where some have suggested that this very well could be the generation that restores the right to life in America. Do you think that could be possible? I think it's very possible, and again, it's because it, ultimately when you talk about the right to life, it's more than just a sentiment. It's about the law. It's a legal assertion. Our founders put it into the founding legal documents of this nation, and it says that the purpose of the law is to—the government doesn't give us life, but the government does have a duty, and that's to protect lives, and particularly the vulnerable. That's why policemen are empowered by the government. To, to protect the lives of those who can't protect themselves. And so this sentiment is, is starting to break through what had been a false representation of this debate. And without going into great detail about fake media and fake news, you and I, Craig, have suffered. I've suffered in the hand of, of media darlings that redefine what I just said. And, and uh, in fact, uh, you're one of the few places, but when I talk to a pop media person, I always ask, do you mind if we record the conversation? Because it's happened more than once. There's been another agenda to redefine things. But you can't hide the truth forever, as Lincoln said can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all of the people all the time. And it is this generation that's waking up. Now what they'll have to do next, as, as those young guys in, in uh, Washington going to the Lincoln Memorial, you have to realize it is about where you make laws. 
it, it, will the laws protect these babies? Now, in California, it's going to be a longer road. But when Roe is overturned, you have many states that will protect babies. And then the other states are going to allow even killing them after they've been born. And so the, the contrast will indeed be great. And then the reason I'm saying it this way is it's one thing to have a feeling about babies. I love babies. But the resolve that we need to ensure that the law protects them is really the step that we're called to, to be involved in the civic process. And that's what the fight over slavery was about, and that's what the fl- fight over protecting the vulnerable child is about. Ultimately, we will need to address the laws. And and no doubt about it. I mean, even with the, the move that we can see potentially within the administration to begin um, pushing not only for certainly more conservative judges, but pushing for um, states to have the right, the ability uh, in every sense, to defund Planned Parenthood at the statewide level, something that heretofore, any time this was ever discussed, seemed to be the, the political uh, third rail, so to speak, uh, I, I think is certainly uh, moving in the right direction. If we can't do it all together at one shot at the federal level, at least we can do it piecemeal, state by state. That's right. And we always do bring it. It's tough in California with our, our ruling party, so to speak. California has become a one-party state. Folks haven't been following that. You're entirely controlled by the Democrat Party and the government of California. But it's the most radical Democrat Party our nation has ever seen. Truly, this is not JFK. This is not even uh, Jimmy Carter. Uh, we're looking at the most radical Democrat Party that that our nation's ever seen. And and really, in many ways, I, again, I, I have Democrats. I'm not attacking them as persons. But it's the ideas. It's the stronghold of ideas in which they trust that are deeply flawed, that dismiss uh, human lives even, and and do so based on a, it's really a theology. And I don't have time to go into it now, but progressivism is actually a theological premise. And Hegel, who is the father of progressivism, was very clear about that. And so they believe passionately. It is actually a passionate belief. I'll have to tell you, I know progressives that are much more committed to their faith in what should and will happen in the future than Christians I know. That the passionate religion of progressivism is actually very, very compelling in their mind. And so we have to help them become unentangled from this way of thinking. They've been taken captive in the futility of their minds. We have to explain to them common sense. You see, that's really the reason that the state of New York had protected babies, again, up until January 21st of, of 2019, this month. The state law of New York protected a baby that was born alive in the course of an abortion. Because that's common sense. That's a self-evident truth. And what we, when we are, are presenting the right to life, we're just pointing to facts objective facts. When you see the pro-abortion movement, always, and again, many progressives in progressive ideology, they present conjectures about the future. And I think you've had him on before. He's passed away since, but our good friend Bernard Nathanson. Oh, yes. Uh Yeah, he was a founder of the National Abortion Rights Action League, and he was one of the individuals that came up with the tens of thousands of women have died well, that was a lie. He admitted that, but he knew it was an emotional lie. And tens of thousands more will die. 
if we if we make abortion illegal they're going to die therefore you're choosing between the baby's life and this woman's life but no that is self-evidently a baby's life that you're indeed killing they make conjectures about the future and they believe their view of the future again it's a belief and they must act on it they would that same child that now you could kill on the table in new york uh, they may say, say something like, oh, well, you know, he probably would grow up in poverty. So they're making a conjecture about the future, and that's presented as truth. Or they might say, well, you know, population it's probably better off that we don't have as many kids because there's too much population and global warming. And, and so there's good reasons for killing, but all of their reasons are not based in facts. They're based in conjectures in assertions that are actually largely unproven. They might cite studies, but Bernard Nathan's an author of the study that was a lie. <laughs> he was glad to tell in his book, Affording America, no, I lied and we were lying the whole time. And we have to be able, and this is a principle of law, and it's the principle of our laws, in particular in America. We base our laws on self-evident truths, on facts. And in any court of law, you have to produce facts objective facts, not personal facts. And that's the battle for the mind that we're facing, that abortion as a, as a fruit of progressivist thinking, they want to go with some perfect world that they believe should happen, and they have conjectures about it, and therefore they're willing to, they're willing to kill certain lives that may get in the way of that future world. And it's a very dangerous way to think, and yet we're told that we have an obligation to present objective facts to help people become unwound in the futility of their mind. They've been taken captive in their mind. It's a, it's a, uh, a fortress of ideas that our job as, as Christians, our real job is not to beat them up religiously. No, our job is actually to show them facts and help them become unentangled that the wise man scales the city of the strong and tears down the fortress in which they trust. So our job is to present facts and want to encourage pro-life folks out there to continue to stand strong, to present the objective facts. If you need more facts, there's a lot of places to go. National Right to Life is just one. But, but get the resources to explain the reason why you have hope in human lives, that there, it, it isn't a hopeless situation. If there's an untimely pregnancy or if there's some emotional needs that are going on, there's no reason to kill that child. And I know many people in our movement that, in fact, they're glad to be alive because their mom came within a hair's breadth of snuffing that life. And they're very pro-life because they know that, that emotions and feelings or conjecture about the future, that's never a good reason to kill. So our challenge is on us, but I actually have hope in spite of all of the the smoke and the, and the emotions that are swirling around at this time, I have high hope that we're, we're getting closer than we had yet imagined, and we're going to see the overturn of Roe v. Wade. Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. More information available on the web, by the way. Many of those resources that Brian referred to at nrlc.org. That's nrlc, the National Right to Life Committee, dot org. Five thir- no, sorry, 632. Traffic with Michael Bennett. Michael? 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Prayer indeed does change things, as my next guest has found out. He is Dr. David Levy. He practices neurosurgery in Southern California. His articles have been widely published in a variety of neurosurgical journals, and he's an accomplished speaker and a co-author of a brand new book entitled Gray Matter. A neurosurgeon discovers the power of prayer one patient at a time. And Dr. Levy, thanks so much for taking time to be with us on the program this evening. It's good to be with you, Craig. Uh, I found your, your book and your observations on the power of prayer very encouraging, particularly in a day and age when there, there's so much being bandied about concerning what's happened with uh, health care in America. I got into an interesting discussion with a friend of mine who's involved in health care, and there have been some discussion about the fact that uh, more and more he's finding uh, both physicians and hospitals referring to the people that come through their doors as clients, to which I took umbrage and said, you know, uh, you may want to let your colleagues know that we patients don't prefer to be referred to as clients because it just seems to kind of reduce us down to nothing more than somebody who helps bring money and while I understand this is an important part of what needs to be done to, you know, keep the lights on in the hospital and, and to pay, uh, you know, the folks that provide the services that they do to keep us all healthy. Nevertheless, it was encouraging to see the perspective that you share inside the pages of Gray Matter that there are some doctors out there who uh, who still want to have a good bedside manner and who, in fact, uh, don't see us as clients, but rather as patients. That's absolutely right, Craig. Yeah, there are uh, quite a number of doctors, I think, that it really got into medicine because they care and they want to see uh, not just uh, uh, the patient necessarily physically get better, although that is our, our goal, that's what we are doing this for, but we also want to see all aspects of health. The physical is just one aspect. There's emotional, relational, and spiritual health, and we want to address all of those. We want to see the patient as a whole person. Has your profession sort of succumbed to much of what we've seen in the scientific community in, in the last hundred years, say, uh, and that is those that would insist that there needs to be a brick wall as much as we've seen a brick wall between science and so-called religion or science and God? Has there been a trend toward that as well within the medical profession where, you know, it's okay if a patient wants to believe in God, but once they enter into the doctor's office, the hospital, the surgery room, uh, we need to leave God outside and never blend the two you know that is that is how i was trained honestly and um, i i am ashamed to admit there was a time in my career where i um i just thought the patients were sort of wasting their time wasting my time um because i believed the surgeon's motto you know heal with steel or you know when in doubt cut it out and some of those uh, <laughs> uh things uh, we use to just uh it, it, it it's it it's not all uh, for the patient. We, we have our own agendas that, that it, uh, as we move into medicine. Is there some tendency to maybe, uh, and I know the, the effort and work that needs to go into studying and preparing to become a successful surgeon of any level, certainly at your level, dealing with you know surgery on the brain, neurosurgeon, uh, is not a casual profession by any means. Is there a sense maybe within some within the medical community that, you know, why do we want to enter into praying for a patient or praying with a patient prior to a procedure? I'm the doctor. I'm in charge. I'm handling this, almost sounding as if at a level maybe while not uh, openly recognized, almost a subconscious sense of, well, I'm not going to bring God into this equation because in my operating room, I am God. You know, that is, that is um, 
I think very correct. Uh, unfortunately, that is how I saw it as well. I, I, I admit that in the book that I, I really didn't want to bring God in because it, it did sort of make things complicated. I, I wanted, to, I wanted to, to take the credit for the surgery and things like that. I mean, it is a tremendous amount of time you spend learning these highly technical skills, and so you actually would like credit for those. And, um, and so to, to pray or to have someone think it was their prayer that did it instead of you, uh, at some level that's potentially offensive. But, you know, for myself, I realized, you know, after I'd done a technically perfect 11-hour surgery and the patient, you know, died the next day of a blood clot, I, 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 that was one of the things that woke me up to say, wow, I can do perfect surgery, but I don't control the outcome. Mm. And so I think we, we, you know, and if we're honest, then we start looking for, well, well, well what else is it? Well, what's happening here? Well, what about uh, the spiritual aspect of, of this case? Because something's happening. Uh, I did everything right, but, um, but I didn't get the outcome I wanted. Yeah, there, there, there's that having the, to kind of succumb to the realization that there's something bigger than me behind all of this. And your story is an interesting one, because you, as you detail inside the pages of Gray Matter, struggled with this idea of to pray or not to pray, and what that would mean, and kind of going back and forth. And then, you know, a a wonderful, almost serendipitous chapter out of the book entitled Physician Heal Thyself, you go in one day to your own dentist. Yeah. (laughs) Tell us us what happened when when that light came on. Well, I'm sitting in the dentist chair, and... um my dentist, I needed to have a filling replaced. He draws up his syringe full of Novocaine. And, you know, I, Craig, I've spent a long time in training so that I could, uh, so that I didn't have to be on the receiving end of those needles. So you're a neurosurgeon. I mean, come on. This is, this is a minor little dental procedure here, you wimp. Yes, but as, when it comes to injections, remember, it's more blessed to give than to receive. <laughs> So I tense up, and my friend sees me. You know, he's trying to hide that needle down below the chair. You know how they sure, do yeah, <laughs> they not quite notice it. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm tensing up, and uh, he puts his hand on my shoulder, and he just says a short prayer. He said, "You know, God guide my hands. Uh, you know, bless David, something like that." And then I felt this peace come over me. It was it was just an unusual. I mean. The needle stick still hurt a bit, but it wasn't the same level of apprehension. It wasn't the same anxiety level. And on my way home that day, I said, you know, I really should be praying for my patients. I really feel like the Lord was speaking to me uh, as I went home. And interesting how your dentist didn't say, now, come on, David, you're a trained, experienced physician. You deal with surgeries significantly more, uh, you know, uh, dangerous and, and risky than this on an every single day. Be a man about it. He could have said any of those things. Yeah. But instead of doing that, he chose to do something very, very different. He 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 recognized number one his own need for God and the role that the Lord plays in this process, which ironically, as you point out, suddenly gave you a greater sense of of comfort. Exactly, exactly, and 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 so when I went to to I I basically said, well, wow, that you know that's as good as Valium. I mean, I should be giving people this. You know, why, why am I not at least asking them, not pushing it on them, but I think it's also very important to, you know, to ask. But I tell you what, that first time I decided to pray, I was terrified. I walked up the stairs, my heart was pounding, uh, 
and of course my busy preoperative area in the hospital was much busier than this dentist's office where it was just, just he and I. There wasn't even a, a hygienist at that point. And um, so I decided to pray with my patient of the day and I walk up to her bed and everything seems fine. She's got her two daughters there, but there's a nurse. <laughs> there's a nurse and there's no way I'm going to pray in front of a nurse. I mean, this this I've decided has got to be a top secret situation. I don't want anyone to see me actually offer to pray with someone unless they think I'm, you know, one of those nuts or something. Of course, you're a senior medical staff. You could have just kicked her out of the room. <laughs> I, I do, right. But I was, I was trying to be sort of very smooth about everything uh, while I'm introducing prayer for the first time. And so I'm trying to outlast her, and I'm waiting, and finally I, you know, say, okay, I'll have to pray another day, and I, I back up to the nurse's station. Uh, I didn't leave. I decided, you know what, I'm not going to give up. Maybe if I wait a few minutes. And so, you know how we do. We pretend that I've got a page, and I pretended to be on the telephone, ah. and, you know. <laughs> so I wouldn't look too suspicious. It's, I mean, honestly, Craig, it was as if I were going to, you know, casing her room like I was going to commit a crime or something. I'm just sort of looking you know, like I was going to steal the woman's purse. I'm just waiting for the nurse to leave. Finally, finally she leaves. And I, I scurry up, and just before I get to the bed, here comes the anesthesiologist. I turn right back around. <laughs> there was no way I was going to pray in front of another doctor. And, and so I waited a little longer. Finally, they left, and I went up to her bedside. And before anyone else could come, and I said, uh, Mrs. Jones, you know, would you mind if, if I said a prayer with you for your surgery? And she looked at her daughters, and they looked at her and shrugged their shoulders and said, fine. So I, um, I put. I, I was thinking about putting my hand on her shoulder, but neurosurgeons are not very touchy feely. We we generally don't touch people unless they're under general anesthesia. They uh, they have a covered with that blue drape, and then we we use a scalpel. So, uh, but I but that's what had been done to me. This my dentist friend had put his hand on my shoulder, and so I put my hand on her shoulder, and I said. Uh, her daughters moved in, they bowed their heads, and I just said, uh, God, thank you for Mrs. Jones. You made the vessels in her brain, and you can help me to fix them. And I just ask for skill and for wisdom in this case and for success. In Jesus' name, amen. I looked up. She was weeping. She's wiping tears from her eyes. Her two daughters are, are wiping tears away from their eyes. And I'm thinking, you know, what, what have I done? You know, what, what, what is this power? And, you know, so I did what any surgeon would do at that point. I patted her on the arm, and I left it for the nurse to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> and here she came with her Kleenexes, handing them out. And I hit the automatic door button and opened those doors and, and went off uh, to my surgery, which, uh, honestly, I had more joy in that surgery than I have ever had in my practice before. Because I, the, the patients look to me as if I'm God, but for the first time in my life I had said, Look, I'm not God. I'm very good at what I do, but I'm not God. But I would be willing to talk to him with you if that's what you'd like. Well, and the amazing thing about all of this, too, is that sense that, you know, as much as we as the uh, patients uh, want to know that you know what you're doing, we also want to know that you care. And that's one of the real keys here. If you've just joined our conversation, Dr. David Levy is with us tonight. We're talking about his new book, The Experience of a Neurosurgeon Discovering the Power of Prayer, One Patient at a Time, the new book called Gray Matter. A brief time out, back with some closing thoughts from Dr. Levy as this edition of Lifeline continues. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And back to our conversation. Dr. David Levy with us tonight. A look at gray matter. A neurosurgeon discovers the power of prayer one patient at a time. As you develop the, the faith, the strength, the willingness to kind of take the risk, I guess we'd call it, doctor, and, and begin praying for your patients, what kind of a change have you seen come over, not just your practice, but your own personal relationship with God? Well, Craig, I think that, uh, that so many of us are burned out on medicine, and uh, I think it's, uh, I believe it's partially due to the fact that, well, we are to give glory to God, and I think so much of medicine is designed around getting glory for the physician, getting the referrals for the physician, and I certainly have uh, been guilty of that for many years, and so there's something about, um, as as we give glory to God, there. It, there is a change that occurs in me. I, I, you know, just somehow the medicine takes on a different flavor. Um, you know, I can give you an example of a, uh, a patient named Ron who came in with uh, a, a problem in his, in the brain. He had a, a, a number of other problems. He was only 40 years old, and he had um, arthritis in his neck and his back. And so I, I began to ask him about um, his emotional health. And I asked him something for the first time. I'd never asked a patient this before. I said, uh, Ron, is there someone that you can't forgive? And he's an enormous man. He's this uh, Marine, an enormous guy. And so he sort of looked at me with this, you know, very bold face. And I'm on one of those little rolling stools, and so I'm starting to roll away from him, (laughs) rolling back to the wall. And finally he said, my mother. And I said, excuse me, I thought, you know, maybe his drill sergeant or his father. And he said, no, my mother. And I said, well, well Ron, what, what happened? And he said, well, my dad left when I was young, but my, uh, my mom, you know, shacked up with a number of different guys, and they would drink, and they would, uh, they would get in fights with her. And I got between uh, one of these men and my mother, and I got knocked down the stairs. And I, I stood up, and I said, come on, Mom, let's get out of here. And she said, no, I'm not leaving. And I've hated her. He said, I've hated her since that time. And I've, um, and 30, that was 30 years ago. And so I said, wow, Ron, that's, that's what I'm looking for. But I'm going to ask you to do something really courageous. I'm going to ask you to forgive her. I said, uh, you know, I want to help you. Would you be willing to do that? So he, he paused for a few moments and then said, okay, yeah, I've, I've, I've hung on to this long enough. And so you know, I led him through a, a prayer, a declaration of forgiveness um, for his mother and for this guy who uh, knocked him down the stairs. And, and then I said, Ron, um, you've forgiven. Is there anything that you need to be forgiven for? And he said, yeah. And so he, um, I said, well, who, who forgives sins? And he said, Jesus does. And so he, he began to confess his, you know, his sins. Because, you know, when, when people hurt us, we generally hurt others. That's just the way it happens. And so this man, you know, walked out of my office, you know, like a foot off the ground. He, he felt just emotionally and physically so much better. He still had to have the surgery, and the surgery went well. But even six months later, he was still joyful because I had taken the time. Now, the interesting thing, when he, when he stood up uh, after I finished uh, the office visit, he said, uh, he said, I feel like calling my mother. Mm-hmm. And he hadn't talked to her in 30 years. And so he, he, they had a family reunion. I mean, you know, that little 
um, conversation had an incredible ripple effect through that whole family because his mother had started going back to church in New York and he flew back there and other members of the family were getting together and 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 I think as physicians or even as friends um, you know we can we can help each other forgive I mean if you listen to a friend or a colleague complain about their you know their ex or their boss or something uh, and you've heard it a number of times say hey I've heard that enough Let, let's forgive uh, let's let's get this. This is not good for you. This is not good for your health. And so I, I really emphasize in the book the uh, the health benefits of forgiveness. Certainly, it, it's had not only an impact on your practice, but your own personal life too. Mm. It, it has. Yes, I, I've I've certainly um, obviously have to practice what I preach. So I, I um, uh, you know I have to forgive. I have to. Um, you know, I actually have to make time in my schedule, usually lunch hour, to to spend talking with patients because oftentimes an office visit is not enough time. And so I, there's nothing I'd enjoy more than spending my lunch hour talking about a patient's spiritual concerns. It's it's a it's just a beautiful time of my day. Um, and so yeah, my my life has changed, and I think I think for the better. Well, we certainly appreciate you sharing with us tonight, Doctor. I mean, it, it just, just goes so nicely hand in glove with the topic we had in hour number one this evening of the importance of the church getting involved and impacting the world around us. And what easier, better place to start than to begin incorporating the power of prayer, not just in our lives privately, but also publicly as well, as Dr. Levy has done in his own practice. The book, Gray Matter, a neurosurgeon discovers the power of prayer, one patient at a time. The book published by Tyndale House and available at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as, as well as through Amazon.com. And uh, once again, our thanks to its author, our guest today, Dr. David Levy. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.